Jonah chapter 1. I want to start this morning by just reading the first three verses. We're going to get a bit of a running start uh, into the text we'll look at this morning, which will start with verse 4. First three verses, just a running head start. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Don't make fun of me for saying Tarshish. It's a terrible word. You stand up here and try to say Tarshish over and over and over again. It's like God's joke to every pastor who's ever taught through the book of Jonah, Tarshish. So Jonah found a boat going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Before we get to verse 4, one of the most striking elements, the most striking things about this story in particular, the story of Jonah, is how the entire trajectory of this man's life ends up being derailed by one stupid decision. I mean, up until verse 3, Jonah has been a godly man. He's been a godly man in every sense of the word. As a Gentile, he, he hadn't been born into the faith. Instead, at a young age, he had made a decision to reject the world around him and become part of God's family, God's people. In our very first study, we noted that, that Jonah came to a saving faith through the ministry of the prophet Elijah. He then moved to the northern part of Israel, the northern kingdom, saved by Elijah, then discipled, mentored by Elisha. Like in his own right, Jonah was a, a great spiritual leader. Up until this text, the man's been on it. He's lived a life of faithfulness, of ministry. He's beloved by the people. He'd become a counselor to kings. And yet, in spite of a wonderful legacy and a great life, his disobedience to this one command of God changed everything. And, and don't miss that. It seems like an obvious point, but many do. Understand, faithfulness is only meaningful as it relates to the present. It's simply a reality that an entire life of faithfulness can be derailed by one foolish action today. This isn't rocket science. Let me just give you a quick example. If tonight you end up cheating on your wife, do you think that all of your years of marital faithfulness is going to lessen that offense? Or for that matter, the consequences? Honey, it was one mistake. I mean, we've been together for 10 years. I've been faithful for 10 years. Yeah, right. Like the hammer's fallen in, in a heartbeat. Faithfulness is only meaningful as it relates to the present. And this should be a warning to us all that even a sterling reputation can be completely tarnished by one poor decision that you make today. You realize you can ruin your life today? That's a warning. It, this is why the Apostle Paul 
writes in Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14. He says, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. He's like, There's a lot of things I don't know, but this one I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I, Paul, press towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Paul realized something we should, that the only thing that really mattered was what he did in the present, today. As such, Paul, he forgot what was behind. And he reached forward to what was ahead by pressing towards the goal of the prize, of the upward calling of God. Not only did such an outlook liberate Paul from some terrible things he had done in his past. Paul had done some terrible things. He'd killed Christians, had held the coats as they stoned Stephen to death there in Jerusalem. The guilt, the condemnation, all of the things Paul no doubt carried, like, that they, they, they would have weighed him down. He's like, I've got to, every day I've got to forget those things which are behind. The bad as well as the good. You see, this perspective, it served as a reminder that Paul couldn't live on the victories of yesterday when facing a fresh new set of battles today. Nor can you. It's sad. It's actually part of this epic tragedy. But Jonah the prophet ends up forfeiting a lifetime of faithful service the very moment he refused to obey God's command to go to Nineveh. Frankly, <laughs> there should be no surprise that this decision had carried with it, fostered, immediate ramifications. You notice verse 3, kind of the, the most dominant word that emerges. Like, look back at it. We read that Jonah went down. You might want to underline that to Joppa. And then went down into the ship. This morning, as we continue the story, we'll see that he, from there, goes down into the hull of the ship, down into the sea, and ultimately down into the belly of the great fish. There's no mistaking the reality that this one decision to refuse God's marching orders took Jonah the prophet down. One author observed that every step away from God is a step down. The life running from God is a life that takes you down. Friend, of the many obvious lessons that you can take away from the story of Jonah, don't miss this obvious point. Rebelling against God by seeking to create a life apart from him will never yield you a better life, but instead a worse one. It's the great lie. Jonah rejected God's word and then set out to flee from the presence of the Lord. And what resulted? Well, as we're going to see, what resulted was nothing but pain and suffering, not just in his own life, but anyone in proximity to Jonah. J. Allen Blair wrote, this is the price of disobedience. No one ever goes up while disobeying God. He always goes down. And disobedience is never without misery. In our last study, we saw that Jonah was a man on a mission. 
tragically, it just so happened to be a mission of the wrong variety. Though God had called him to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel, for all kinds of reasons we've already discussed, Jonah wants no part of God's plan. Not only does he reject the word of the Lord, but Jonah goes so far as to renounce his faith. Refusing to travel 500 miles north and east to Nineveh, that was one thing. But this act of boarding a ship and setting sail 2,000 miles the opposite direction reveals a lot about Jonah's heart. As we've mentioned, Jonah's desire to run, to flee from the presence of the Lord, it can be literally translated as fleeing from the face of the Lord. As a prophet, Jonah knew he couldn't escape the long arm of God. As such, this phrase, to flee from the presence of the Lord, it means that Jonah, what he learned about God, it was so disturbing to him that God would save the Ninevites that he throws in the towel, rejects his faith, rejects God's people. He bails from Israel, leaves the land of promise. I mean, Jonah wants to go as far away from God as humanly possible. It's crazy. Tarshish. The location's kind of a mystery. Some people speculated that it might have been on the Atlantic coast side of Spain, maybe Portugal. Some scholars even say that it could have been an outposting as far away as the island of Great Britain. Either way, Jonah said he got a ticket as far as he could go to the end of the earth. Before we continue, there's one more observation worthy of our, of our attention. Not only does God allow Jonah the freedom to exercise his free will by running. Like, do you notice what's kind of missing? The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, but Jonah runs, right? Well, what's missing? <laughs> the Lord doesn't put up a fight, does he? There's no banter, no conversation. God doesn't even resist Jonah's wishes. Jonah wants to run. God was willing to say, all right, pal, knock yourself out. And yet, here's the thing, don't miss. Jonah goes to run and God allows that, but the enemy had a vessel that was ready to facilitate his escape. Like to this point, John Corson, he writes, whenever you're running from the call of the Lord, you can be sure Satan will have a ship all ready for you to set sail. Friend, the enemy, and you need to know this, the enemy will always make sure that rebelling against God is as easy as humanly possible. I'll repeat that. Don't miss it. If you're wanting to rebel against God, to resist his word, the enemy will, will make that as easy as possible for you. Like, it's why any time you decide to run from God, there will be a ship just ready to take you away. God will not resist your free will, and the enemy is more than willing to aid you. Contrary to popular opinion, the truth is that adultery, adultery doesn't begin when a man sleeps with another woman. Instead, adultery really occurred the very moment a man decided to leave his wife when his heart left the marriage. You see, the mistress, the mistress was really nothing more than the vessel that the enemy had prepared to facilitate the man's journey. And the action itself, 
was nothing more than a manifestation of what was already percolating in his heart. Like, brothers and sisters, there's a warning here, isn't there? Anytime your desires begin to wander, it won't be long. You can expect it, that the enemy will provide a perfect mechanism for you to act upon those desires. Expect it. Out of the blue. You've been doing good, but out of the blue. You just so happen to bump in to that old running buddy you used to party with. You'd escaped a lifestyle, but just, it just so happened. You were in, in Kroger, and you just bumped into him. What are you doing this weekend? Nothing. Let's go party like we used to. One seemingly random day. You have a big fight with your wife, and what happens? Bloop. Look down at your phone, and that former fling has friend requested you on Facebook. Look at the timing. Or how about you're given a juicy bit of gossip that pertains to an enemy or a rival, you know, something good. You can use to take that person down or to hurt them because they've hurt you. Or how about your boss surprises you with an important business trip to Vegas where you have to entertain an important client? It's a ship ready to set sail. I even have a dear friend who is struggling with pornography, right? When out of the blue, he, he, he stumbled upon a brand new Playboy magazine, check this out, as he's mowing the yard at the church. Here he is, struggling with addiction, trying to get away, trying to have his way, mowing the, mowing the lawn at the church. And there, right under the marquee, is an unopened, if it was open, you want to avoid it, but it's, un, you know, it's unopened. It's like, well, could this be a sign? That's a true story. I'm not kidding. True story. On the surface, all these things seem to be random, accidental, coincidences. But are they really? Was it a coincidence that Jonah, he refuses to go to Nineveh, goes to Joppa, it just so happens to find a boat that was ready to take him to the other end of the world. On the surface, these things might seem to be a coincidence, but if you're honest, what's actually happening is the enemy is seeking to facilitate a decision that you're already chewing on. And this decision, friend, will take you down. Well, verse 4. But the Lord, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, but Jonah. Now we get up, but the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. Verse 3 left us with Jonah boarding a boat, headed to the other end of the world. What's interesting about this from a storytelling angle is that verse 4 appears to fast forward the scene. He boards a boat in verse 3, but now this boat is caught by a mighty tempest. 
The boat itself is somewhere in the Mediterranean Sea, probably hugging the northern coastline of Africa. No one sailed into deep waters. With this in mind, we have no idea how long they've been at sea. We have no idea how long, how far along the journey they happen to be. There's a gap between verses 3 and verse 4. Now, as I play the movie out in my head, I imagine this ship. Jonah gets to Joppa, finds the boat. This ship left the port under ideal conditions. This is how I play the movie out. It was the right time of the year to sail. Weather was pristine. The sea was calm. The winds even favorable. From Jonah's estimation, his plan... Man, it was unfolding better than he could have even imagined. Nineveh, as they sail across the water, is in his rearview mirror. With each passing day, Jonah feels more and more at ease as he gets away from that wicked place. No doubt, I'm sure Jonah was even eager to hear the imminent news that Nineveh had been destroyed because he had refused to go. I'm sure Jonah as he's standing there on the bow, looking out across the water, he spends his days daydreaming about the life he's about to create, the, the, the new steps in Tarshish. All of this is happening, okay? And then we have a bomb dropped into the text. But the Lord. Three words, man. But the Lord. Anything going on in your life, and we're writing the tale, and we're like, so-and-so was doing this, this, and that, but the Lord. What comes next is typically not great. Though God had allowed Jonah to run, though God hadn't resisted his intentions, his rebellious intentions, even though God had given, had given him ample time to maybe reconsider the choices he was making, don't forget that the Lord loved Jonah enough to pursue him, even after Jonah had rejected him. Never forget this. At some point in your rebellion, there will come a moment where God will no longer sit idly by. And you know the very fact that we have but the Lord as it pertains to Jonah's story? To me, I find it astounding. Like nothing about Jonah demanded that God involve himself any longer. Like Jonah had made a decision. God could have sent another prophet to Nineveh. The amazing thing about this tale is that while Jonah was through with God, the Lord was not through with Jonah. What grace that even when Jonah didn't want God's intervention, the Lord loved him enough to intervene anyway. Yes, Jonah was absolutely free to run from the presence of the Lord, but that didn't mean the Lord wasn't equally free to follow after. As a matter of fact, the remainder of this chapter will describe several ways that the Lord seeks to get Jonah's attention. Ways that God attempts to get Jonah to stop destroying his life. Ways that God pursues a man on the run. Notice, we're told, the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. And this wind stirred up such a mighty tempest that the ship itself was about to be broken up. Now what's being described here is without a doubt a supernatural occurrence. Keep that in mind. This wasn't a normal storm. 
As we'll come to see, even the pagan crew that was on board the boat with Jonah sensed that there was a divine element at work. Beyond this, the tempest, it appears to be so sudden, stirred up so fast, that even the most seasoned seamen were caught off guard. They didn't see it coming. In a matter of only a few moments, this sky, it darkened. The wind began to howl. What had been a calm and favorable sea quickly grew into a mighty tempest. The storm hit so fast that it afforded this crew no time to prepare to batten down the hatches. The waves of this storm just crashing across the bow. It was so severe that almost immediately the ship was about to go down, about to be broken up. Not only are we told that the, the boat's in peril, but throwing over the cargo in an attempt to lighten the load, well, that failed as well. Like things were growing so unfavorable, so fast, that even these hardened mariners were afraid. So afraid that, look back at the text, every man on that boat began crying out to their gods. It's been said, you've heard it, that there are no atheists in foxholes. In a single moment, upon that boat, this storm turned even the crassest and most apathetic of sailors into immediate religious men of fervent prayer. In the Bible, you'll find God allowing two types of storms. First, there are storms, storms of obedience. An example of this would be what the disciples encountered in Mark chapter 4. In this story, Jesus commanded his disciples to get into a boat, sail across the Sea of Galilee. Well, later that night, they're about halfway across the sea, and a great tempest arose. You see, storms of obedience are not storms of your own making. The disciples, they had done nothing wrong. As a matter of fact, they were being completely obedient to the commands of Jesus when they found themselves in the middle of a storm. You see, God allows these storms not to destroy us, but to perfect us. They don't originate as a consequence or a byproduct of anything you've done or haven't done. They're out of your control. They arise suddenly, without warning. Storms like these occur naturally, sometimes being nothing more than the byproduct of living in a fallen world. Our church family, we know these storms. When a cancer diagnosis or a nagging illness arises, a loved one's health declines, Children go wayward, struggle to find solid employment, the disappointment of a breakup. Something happens. It's not your fault. You didn't do anything, and God's not punishing you. It's just the results of living in a, in a fallen world, but God will use these storms to perfect us, to grow us. More often than not in the Bible, these storms, they're referred to with the, the, the word trials. In James chapter 1, <laughs> we're given this daunting exhortation. Brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. When you face trials. Not if, not on the happen chance. When. They're coming. You can, you can fit all humanity into three categories. A person coming out of a storm, a person facing a storm, 
or a person in a storm. We're in one of the three. There's always storms. But what's interesting, this is a different storm. Verse 4 is clear that this mighty tempest that Jonah and these mariners were facing, it was initiated by God. See, this isn't what what you would call a storm of disobedience, a storm of your own making, a situation that God allows for the purpose not of perfection, but of correction. These storms are self-made, self-inflicted, caused by your sin, your rebellion, your poor choices. See, as it pertained to Jonah, this was a storm of disobedience allowed by God for a specific reason. I don't find it an accident that the first result of the storm was that the ship was about to be broken up. You see, this storm arose because of Jonah's disobedience. And then it's used by God, check it out, to target what? The very vessel facilitating his rebellion. How fascinating. Don't miss it. The very thing the enemy used to aid in Jonah's disobedience became the very vessel of his misery. It's been said God will use the mechanism facilitating your rebellion to afflict you. Such was the case with Jonah. And note, the purpose of this mighty storm, this tempest, was not to destroy Jonah. Don't miss that. Rather, the storm was designed to awaken Jonah to a much larger reality. Consider the identity of these seamen. First, they weren't Hebrews. In no instance historically were the Hebrew people ever nautical. They weren't a seafaring folk. Instead, it's, it's, it's likely these mariners were Gentiles, specifically Phoenicians. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. God wanted Jonah to save the Ninevites. It's why he he commissioned Jonah and sent him there. These Gentile pagan Ninevites. And yet Jonah's on a boat heading the opposite direction because he preferred those Ninevites perish. Now, because of his actions, we find another group of Gentiles about to die. He ran because of his hatred of these Gentile Assyrians. Now he finds himself on a boat and a bunch of other Gentiles are about to die, about to perish. It's almost as though God is trying to get Jonah to personalize the results of his rebellion. Once again, the movie, as it plays out, here's Jonah. The tempest, the storm, the wind, the waves. He's looking around at frantic men, men that don't scare easily. Men who are freaked out, convinced that they're about to meet a certain death. And you know what should have happened in that moment as he's looking around the bow? Knowing that the storm is there because of him. His heart should have been stirred. You see, God loved these Gentile mariners. He loved them as much as he loved the Ninevites. In a practical way, God is wanting Jonah to be moved to compassion. And the presence of of men lost facing the prospects of death and judgment. (laughs) And don't forget what's happening on deck, right? 
Not only does he see their fear, but these men are so desperate. What are they doing? They're crying out to false gods, praying that these false gods would save them. Oh, the irony that the one prophet on board who happened to know the true and living God is Jonah. Jonah's standing there watching them cry out and pray to false gods, hoping for salvation, and Jonah has the key. I happen to know a God who has the power to save. In this moment, I think Jonah is very aware that he's being given a second chance to make the right decision. What could have Jonah done? He could have repented right there, you know? Faced with the storm, fallen to his knees, cried out to the Lord. Could have called out for salvation. (laughs) Seen the wind and the waves cease immediately. Could have led these men to the Lord, had them turn the ship around, go back to Joppa. How sad that upon seeing the tempest, the practical needs of these fearful men around them, even being given a second chance, seeing their spiritual desperation, knowing that they were all likely to drown in the sea, instead of humbling himself and repenting, what do we read? But Jonah. says, to heck with this. He goes down to the lowest parts of the ship. He lays down. He goes to sleep. How calloused, really. Jonah knew why the tempest had arisen. He knew that the crew was likely to be innocent bystanders, but he doesn't give a flip. Doesn't care. In the Hebrew, this word translated fast asleep, it means that Jonah was in a deep sleep. Like there are some commentators that even point to verse 5 as evidence that Jonah was, was oblivious to the needs around him, that he's missing the chance to be a witness out of ignorance. I completely disagree. It's the tempest, then Jonah acts. It's how the the structure in the Hebrew unfolds. See, I think Jonah's intentions here are more sinister than just being ignorant. Like what Jonah does here is completely intentional. This man had rejected the grace that God wanted to demonstrate through him to the Ninevites. That's why he's on the run. Now, he doesn't care about these mariners who are about to perish on his account. Like Jonah's disregard for some had now morphed into a disregard for all. Friend, you need to know that this is what resisting grace does in the heart of a person. You see, the person who closes their fist to God's grace will find it then impossible to share anything but hate to those they encounter. Well, you can understand, right? Jonah may be resisting sharing grace to wicked Assyrians. I mean, they did deserve judgment, right? I mean, there's part of it, going back to our first study, where Jonah's given this command. It's like, eh, I don't know. They're really bad people. Like, they don't deserve grace at all. But this is what's interesting. Now, now he is failing to demonstrate kindness to a group of men who've done nothing wrong. You catch that? These Phoenician Gentile seamen were completely innocent, and Jonah has no excuse for not being God's instrument, for not acting. 
Though this tempest was designed by God to awaken Jonah to that reality, to stir his heart for compassion towards the lost, because Jonah is unwilling to relent. This is what the storm ends up doing. It only served to harden him even further in his resistance. Once again, while no one would have blamed God right, at this point, you and I, good thing we're not God, but if it had been us, I'm like, dude, I'm out. Jonah, pfft, it ain't worth it anymore. Like I would have thrown my hands up in disgust. I would have ended my pursuit of a man that brazen. But not so with the Lord. That's what's interesting. Like if the storm failed to get through to Jonah, maybe something else will. Look, look back, verse 6. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let's cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? So Jonah said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I'm sure you do. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. And they said, why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more... Uh, Someone help me. Tempestuous, thank you. This sea, right? It grows worse. The situation becomes all the more serious. Once again, you jump back into, into the, the movie. People throwing cargo over. They've got their, their life vests on. You know, they're battening down things. They're freaking out. They're on their, their knees praying. Like everything is just, this, this scene is chaos. But the captain, as he kind of surveys what's going on, something seems odd. Like there's one part of the scene that doesn't fit. While all the men are fearful, desperate, crying out to their gods to be saved, where's Jonah? He's sawing logs down in his hammock in the bottom of the boat. He's not freaked out. He's not desperate. He's not afraid. In fact, his actions show total indifference to their fate. See, at some point, the captain, he runs up, he comes to Jonah, presumably wakes him from his slumber. What are you doing, sleeper? And then he challenges his apparent apathy. He commands him, arise, get up, start calling on your God, believing maybe your God will save us. <laughs> you know you're in rebellion when it's unbelievers exhorting you to pray, <laughs> right? Like, you know you've, you've descended down to a point when it's the unbelieving world around you be like, bro, I don't know what's going on. You should really pray. Once again, we have no idea how long the scene unfolds, but there are two things certain. One, Jonah likely refused the captain's orders and remained totally disengaged. And two, the desperation of the seamen intensified. Like here they are, they're convinced this mighty tempest of a divine nature, it's about to take them down. They need to know why. They cast lots. No idea what that means, really. 
probably not dice, but some way of, of, of determining the future, trying to get God to speak. They, but they cast lots to determine the man. Find out why this is happening. Now imagine the moment. The lot falls on Jonah. You know, they go down, they get a bunch of straws, they cut them up. Who's going to draw the short straw? You know, and there's Jonah with the little nub. Whoops. Like, here he is. All eyes are now on Jonah. He's been discovered. He can't hide. The crew, now knowing something is awry, they start interrogating him. They're demanding answers immediately. Who are you? Where are you from? What's your occupation? What have you done, man? Not only does Jonah explain who he is, but we're actually told he's honest about why he's on the boat in the first place. He tells the men, yeah, man, I'm on this boat and this storm is out here because I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Once again, in this moment, Jonah's given another opportunity, isn't he? Like here's a group of Gentile pagans convinced their gods were fake and powerless and that Jonah's God is real and powerful. Like this is the perfect audience to share your faith with. Yeah, our God's totally failed. Your God's for real. Can you tell us? Like, what do we need to do now? Like, the twist of the story is here they are knowing that the storm is Jonah's fault, but now they're seeking Jonah for guidance and wisdom, but mainly deliverance. Jonah is given another incredible chance to repent, isn't he? Like, in this moment, he's caught, he's been found out, drew the short straw, he could have repented. He said, guys, I'm sorry, I've been running from the Lord. He could have fallen to his knees. The storm would have ceased. It could have gone back. And yet, Jonah is still resisting grace. Look at what he says next, verse 12. So Jonah said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. <laughs> and the sea will be calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Like, of, of all the things you can say of Jonah, there are a lot of nasty words you can use. He's not a hypocrite. You give him that. But you know what else he's not? The dude is not a coward. Like, realizing that God is, is clearly not going to let him run. Jonah would rather die than go to Nineveh. Like, Of all the ways to die, drowning in the ocean, that's like maybe second to fire. That's the last way I'm going down, man. That's why I don't get in boats. Far enough from land that I can't swim back to. Like, no thank you. It's big storm, the whole thing. And Jonah's like, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm ready to go. Just throw me in. Like, he's so stubborn. You know what's also interesting? He tells a half-truth. Like, don't forget, it's a half-truth. Yes, if they threw him overboard, the sea would be calm, they would be saved. And yet, what Jonah fails to mention is the most obvious, easiest way of dealing with it all. That his repentance would have also yielded the same result. He's like, I could repent and this would be nice, or you could throw me overboard. I'll go with option B. 
It's incredible that the mighty tempest is not enough to deter Jonah and his rebellion. Beyond that, witnessing the desperation of these Gentile sailors also failed to influence his perspective. And yet there's one more way that God seeks to get through to Jonah. Look at verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more severe against them. Like, think about how, how all of this progresses. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah. He rejects the word, goes south to Joppa instead of going to Nineveh. He boards a boat. He and the crew set sail. Ideal conditions. Without warning, a tempest strikes, places the ship, the lives of all those on board in serious jeopardy. Recognizing the divine element behind the storm, the crew, they start crying out to God for deliverance. Knowing the storm is on account of his rebellion, Jonah does nothing until he's called on the carpet. And then he's half honest with the crew. Instead of repenting, he's like, bro, just throw me overboard. Like, for a minute, I want you to, to think about this. Like, if you, me, if we were on this boat, if we were one of the mariners, and we've just been filled in on the entire chain of events, what would you have done? To me, it's very easy. I would have immediately thrown that joker overboard as soon as he made the request. Oh, it's your fault? You want to go overboard? That'll solve the problems? All right, hoist it away. Like, there's no conversation. Like, I'm serious. Maybe that's saying something bad about me, but I'm the truth. All things considered, making that decision would be easy. Like, I'd done nothing wrong here, right? But I'm suffering because of this man's rebellion. Because of his sin, I've had to toss over all of my cargo, my possessions, at a personal expense. Like, I'm not getting compensated for any of that. Like, more pressingly, I now have no doubts that his actions, Jonah's actions, it's placed my life in peril. And to make matters worse, the dude doesn't care. It's not like he's saying, I'm sorry, my bad. Like maybe if there was some, like we would have a conversation, I'd still throw him overboard, but maybe we'd have a dialogue. But like he, he doesn't care. Like in the very instance that Jonah suggests that the storm would cease the moment he hits the water, boom, dude's going overboard. Like we're going to have an experiment. Maybe I tie, maybe I tie him up, throw him overboard and see if it happens. You know, you know, Jonah hits the water, the storm ceases. Wow. Let's row him back up. As soon as he gets out of the water, the storm turns back. Put him back in. Cut the rope. Peace, man. You're out of here. This is what I find fascinating. While Jonah deserved to go swimming, and these men would have been justified in such an action, in response to Jonah saying, throw me into the ocean, we're told, nevertheless, the men rode harder to return to land. Like, did you, did you catch that? These Gentile pagan mariners choose to demonstrate grace to a man who deserved judgment. Does that not seem ironic? What a contrast to Jonah, who's willing to allow judgment to befall innocent men simply on account that he's stubborn and doesn't want to show grace. Jonah is running. But the Lord is in hot pursuit. 
God allows Jonah to board a boat, allows him to set a course. But that didn't mean that God was done seeking to reach Jonah. First, there was a storm of disobedience. Jonah experiencing consequences for his actions. When that failed to change his course, God allowed him to see how his rebellion was affecting others. And yet, when none of this gets through, here's God's final attempt. God allows a man refusing to demonstrate grace to be the recipient of grace. Grace he doesn't deserve. You and I throw Jonah overboard. These men row harder. There is something that we can draw from the example of these men. Something that applies to how you and I should handle those running from God in our midst. You know the truth with someone that's running from God in your life? You know the truth? It's so much easier to throw them overboard. (laughs) Isn't it? To wipe our hands into the deep. So much easier to just cut ties, go our separate ways, especially when we're suffering in a storm they created. And yet, the more divine calling is to show grace. Now, that's not to say there isn't a time when the man resisting God shouldn't go overboard. (laughs) Jonah will. But this should only occur after we've carried God's grace as far as humanly possible. Sadly, in spite of their attempts to get to the shore, the sea grew more stronger. God was pursuing a man on the run. He wasn't going to let Jonah off the hook. What should have happened as Jonah encounters their kindness, kindness he doesn't deserve, he should have humbled himself, he should have repented, but sadly he doesn't. Therefore, verse 14, they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. Do not charge us with, the, with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They're crying out, by the way, Lord, capital L, Jehovah. They're now using, they're crying out to Jonah's God. Blows my mind. And then they picked Jonah up, threw him into the sea. Good for them. And the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, wouldn't you? And they offer a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. I don't know what they killed and sacrificed. Interesting. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That's where we'll pick up the story next Sunday. But, you know, it's not an accident that God still used his prophet to reveal himself to these pagan sailors in spite of Jonah and definitely not because of him. How cool is that? Honestly, some of the greatest lessons that I've learned in my spiritual life have come by witnessing a friend go down, down, down because he refused the appeals of a God that was in hot pursuit. And yet, if you're refusing God's commands, if you're resisting his word, if you're presently seeking to run from his presence, there is a lesson that you should hear. Not only is there a real enemy more than willing to help you run, 
But there is a real Lord who will come after you. I hope you know that. If you're refusing God, if you're like Jonah, hey, it's true. You're completely free to flee as long as you understand Jesus is equally free to pursue. And you don't deserve it. You likely don't even want it. But Jesus loves you, friend, enough to not sit idly by. As long as he can, Jesus will always pursue until you breathe your last. If this is you this morning, I want you to be honest, please. Since you have made the decision to resist God's word, to run from God's will, to resist God's grace, can I ask, has your life gotten better or worse? (laughs) And if you're presently experiencing clear skies, no. A mighty tempest is on the horizon. And it will I and it will likely strike unannounced when you least expect it. Friend, in God's love, he will not allow you to continue a journey away from him undeterred. In actuality, whatever it is that's facilitating your rebellion will in the end become the thing God will use to take you down. And know when that happens, the storm, it's not God's way of paying you back. The storm exists to bring you back. It's a difference. God seeks restoration, not retribution. And yet, if experiencing the consequences of your sin is not enough to get you to open your eyes and foster a repentant heart, this is what I want you to also do. I want you to look around at the lives that are being unfairly devastated by your decisions. The people, they've done nothing wrong. The only reason that they find themselves in a storm is because of their proximity to you. So often we forget that rebelling against God negatively affects everyone in our lives. I I have to take a second and say it, and the principle I'm about to say, it's applicable in so many ways. But I want to speak to men for a minute. If you love your family, the best thing you can do for them is follow Jesus. That is the best thing you can do for your wife. It's the best thing you can do for your kids. It's the best thing you can do for your neighbors, for your job, your co-work. The best thing you can do for those around you is follow Jesus. See, following Jesus will enable you to sacrificially love your wife. It'll foster an environment your kids will thrive in. It's sad, but I have seen so many selfish and short-sighted men create a storm. It's a different word I want to use, but I can't because it's church. A storm that's not only devastating their own life, but has just devastated their wife and their kids. They've done nothing wrong, but the selfish man is messing over their lives unfairly. Hey, if you won't wake up to the storm, look around the crew, man, and see that what you're doing is destroying them. And maybe that will stir you. But if all this fails to reach a man on the run, if it fails to drive you to your knees in repentance, (laughs) there is still one more reality that can. And you know what it is? 
It's the fact that even knowing the brutal reality that the situation that you're in is the byproduct of you, that you're in a mess of your own making, a mess that's hurting innocence, even in spite of that, Jesus is on the deck. That Jesus is still willing to demonstrate grace. He's willing to demonstrate grace to Jonah. He's willing to demonstrate grace to you in spite of your rebellion, in spite of your resistance, in spite of the fact that you've rejected him. Here's the truth. Jesus's grace still is offered and it still remains. Why? The Bible tells us, for it is the grace of God that leads a man to repentance. If you're a man or a woman on the run, stop. Fall to your knees. Come back to the cross, the place where his grace was demonstrated, knowing it's at that place that all sin is forgiven. Now, there still might be a storm, but, but friend, you don't have to go overboard. The storms that we find in the Gospels. The storm mentioned, Jesus goes walking by the disciples. They're rowing. Jesus is walking on the sea right by them. This is the second storm, though. The first one, Jesus was in the boat asleep. And they come and wake him up. Why aren't you doing anything? Same, same thing that we see with Jonah. We've talked about how Jesus is a greater Jonah. For while Jonah is not willing to do anything, what did Jesus do? He rebuked the wind and the waves. Boom, there was calm. As a matter of fact, they were at the shore. Jesus in the storm. It's not that Jesus helps us through the storm. It's that Jesus is the way through the storm. So much so that when Jesus is walking by the boat, Peter's like, yo, that looks rad. Can I, can I come? Jesus is like, come on, man. Peter gets the only other person to walk on water. Now, it was just a few steps. He starts to sink. But here's the point. Peter knew something important. In a storm, it's not being in a boat or out of a boat. It doesn't matter. It's about being with Jesus. If Jesus is in the boat, stay in the boat, man. If Jesus is walking on water, you know what you should do? Get out and walk with him. Safest place to be in the storm. Jesus. Jonah resisted acting. Jesus got up and he spoke. He wants to work in your life. Don't resist his grace. Don't. You'll only go down. So, Father, we want to let that settle in.